I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and I'm in the studio today with my son, Zane. It's great to be back. So last week's episode was postponed to this week due to circumstances, and I won't go into what those circumstances are, but we're all living in different circumstances right now, so I'm sure that you, my loyal listeners, are more than forgiving, and I, at least I hope you are, and I imagine that you are. But here we are, it is the Sunday before Memorial Day, tomorrow's Memorial Day. When you're listening to this, it will already be Memorial Day, or Memorial Day will have been in the past already, depending on when you get to this episode, but this is what we're doing. I'm in the studio with Zane, and this week is an interview by Zane with me. So without any further ado, let's get into it. All right, let's go. So I think the wait will be well worth it for this one. It's an exciting one. It's about why people don't feel like voting systems or electoral systems, or whatever you want to call it, are fair. All right, so I'm going to start, as I usually do, with a little bit of history and context questions. So, father, dad... Why did the Founding Fathers design our electoral system the way they did? Well, you know, they didn't really design our electoral system. They left it up to the states to design our electoral system. And that was actually one of the things that it was kind of a non-event event or a non-choice choice at the Constitutional Convention. There were some delegates who wanted to talk about what the electoral system would look like and voting rights and procedures, but they couldn't agree on what voting rights should be like, and they uh, quickly ran into the fact that this was going to be a contentious issue because if you're setting up a democratic system, the voting rights and the rules of elections are going to be very important. And they just knew that they couldn't come to agreement, and they didn't have to. It was one of those things where they could actually punt on this one because the states were already running their own elections, and the states already had their own governments. There were 13 democracies running in North America. And the delegates to the Constitutional Convention just pretty much were like, okay, let's just leave it up to them. And that also, that non-choice choice set up the possibility for, you know, like our federal system running in this laboratories of democracy kind of way where states would do certain things. Uh, one state might innovate and then others could look at that and say, oh, that was either a good or a bad innovation and we're going to follow that or not. So our electoral system is in fact separate 50 separate states running their own elections. We have 
national officers. We have people who serve in the U.S. Congress. We have a president and a vice president, all elected, but they're elected through state elections, and they vary quite a lot. We're here in Oregon where we have mail-in balloting. There are no polling places. You, you don't get to go somewhere and vote. You can drop off your ballot at a, a ballot box, but it's not the same as a polling place. And that is now some other states are adopting that, but we were the first ones to have that, and it's very different. Uh, so we, we get our ballot about two weeks before Election Day, and we have two weeks to vote, basically. So uh, that's, yeah, that answers your question, I think. Right, well, so I, what I was kind of going for is like originally when the founders designed because they we were the first true democracy and we were kind of winging it a little bit right absolutely winging it so like what were some of the even though they didn't really design a full electoral system what were sort of the guiding principles of what what the founders wanted our electoral system to be like well good i'm glad you threw that back at me because all of the delegates to the constitutional convention were in fact state politicians they came from the states they were representing the states and the states, as I said, all had their own electoral systems. And so what the founders' ideas were, were mostly that only them and people like them had the right to vote. Uh, definitely just men and white men and white men with property. So all of the states had various restrictions on voting rights. They were different from state to state. And that's part of what the delegates to the convention didn't do was set some kind of uniform national set of standards but basically their idea was we and people like we get to vote now new jersey did actually grant women the right to vote and that lasted for about a decade and then it went away and and in fact women voted some women voted to keep the voting rights but there were some women that voted to remove their voting rights which how ironic right well it's interesting it points out that you know women actually vary in their views on the role of women in politics you know if you were a woman who had the right to vote and there was a a proposal to revoke that right and you actually supported it it's because you believed that women didn't belong in the public sphere and that was a that was a common viewpoint it seems it seems ironic but it's it just points out that people's political views are actually sometimes pretty they can seem perverse to others, but to the people who hold them, they make perfect sense. Right. So before we go on from the founders, because I think this is an important context, could you just quickly talk about like the founders' idea of mob rule and what they thought democracy should be rather than what kind of how we think of democracy today? Well, it sounds like you already know if you're if you're using the term mob rule. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm asking questions. I'm on behalf of the people. So on behalf. Of the, okay. Yeah. So uh, you're right. You're treating me like I'm the expert when in fact you have a level of expertise <laughs> about this. But yeah, it's this is a pretty common uh, this is pretty common knowledge that the founders didn't really trust the full version of the people, all the persons who lived in a state or a nation. They didn't trust them all to make political decisions. And uh, a big part of what American history has been about has been excluded groups seeking inclusion into the system that the founders thought was perfectly wonderful for the world and for themselves. Uh, And it's understandable that they felt like others couldn't participate in it because it's a hard thing to do, right? To, to actually be an informed citizen, to be an active public servant, to be uh, a, you know, a, a voter and a person who protests and pays attention to the government, does all the stuff that sort of the model of democracy tells us you're supposed to do. That's, it's a lot to do. And so these property-owning white dudes, of course, were like, well, it's hard enough for us and no one else could possibly do it. So let's let's exclude them because it could be disastrous if, you know, it's it's like 
they thought of uh, the excluded groups the same way that parents think of their children. Like you can't let your child decide what they're going to eat all day because they'll just eat ice cream all day, right? So there was there was a certain aspect of that. Uh, and there has been a very gradual <laughs> growing out of that presupposition. And I think there are still some people who believe that there are groups of people who are excluded or who it's difficult for them to vote that they maybe shouldn't be part of the decision. Yeah. And so, so we've kind of set the baseline of a small group of people voting on this issue or voting on an issue. How throughout United States history has the electoral system sort of our ideas about the electoral system changed over time? Well, I think that they've changed by excluded groups making their demand for inclusion known and accepted. Uh, and the, the, you know, the very first voting rights movement was the white men's voting rights movement. It was propertyless white men seeking to be recognized as full citizens who had the right to run for office, even if they didn't have property, who had the right to vote for their representatives, even if they didn't have property. And they won the right to vote without a constitutional amendment. And this is the thing, talk about privilege, like the, all, the, all the other excluded groups, uh, African-Americans, women, young people, all of them gained the right to vote through a constitutional amendment. White guys without property were able to win it through basic political change. Uh, and the dynamic that led to this was that the United States was expanding and the Louisiana Purchase opened up a bunch of new territory, and even just the Treaty of Paris that, that gave the United States its uh, independence from Britain, gave the U.S. territory out to the Mississippi River, and so new states were being carved out of this territory. And it was the howling frontier, and these states, or the I should say these territories, the, and the people who went out to sort of first pioneer them and were, their, were the territorial leaders, in order to become states, they needed to attract settlers. And in order to make them, you know, good places to live. They needed more people. And one of the things that these territories and new states did was they offered voting rights to people who didn't have them back east. And so if, you know, you're living in an eastern city and or, you know, you're a small uh, struggling farmer in an eastern rural area and you don't have the right to vote because you don't have enough property and yet you believe in all of these values of liberty and democracy and equality and then you hear about an opportunity to go and actually have your full share of political rights somewhere, that's going to be an incentive to move. And so what happens is there's actually a kind of an inducement to pioneers or settlers to migrate to the Western, you know, states and Western at the time, like Ohio was a Western state. Um, it was the frontier. Uh, and, uh, so what ended up happening is that these states are attracting people. And then the states back East started recognizing that, okay, there was a trend here. And so they started loosening their voting restrictions uh, so that eventually by the middle of the 19th century every state had granted all adult white men the right to vote right and so that was the very first movement it was kind of a political competition and it sort of it was a market a market mechanism every other excluded group has had to struggle to win recognition by white men and to do so through a constitutional amendment. And that's how everyone else has gotten their right to vote. So the general trend has been widening the electorate to more and more groups of people rather than necessarily changing the system by which our politics work. And that's kind of what I want to focus on here. And what leads me to my next question is because people still don't think that the system's unfair despite this great widening of 
people who are allowed to vote, and what are some of the reasons that people don't like that? Well, you know, there's one, you're, you're totally right that the political system hasn't changed. Our electoral system has not changed uh, in its nature, even as the electorate has been widened, and even as these excluded groups have found a way to become included, because what we've always had all along was a territorial system of representation with a winner-take-all system. And uh, the territories are, there are two different kinds of territories that are represented. One is states, and they have their two senators. Everyone in the state gets two senators. And then there are congressional districts, which have to be roughly equal sized. And so those people each get one member of the House of Representatives. And states, which hold the elections for these seats, have opted to use a territorial winner-take-all system. There are other electoral systems that involve preference voting, that involve uh, multi-member districts, that involve proportional representation. We don't need to get into all the different possible electoral systems here in this particular episode, but there are a lot of other options that have never been embraced by uh, our electoral system, any of the state's uh, electoral systems. So it has the, the way that we elect people has remained unchanged since the founding. It's just that now there's more people included. And so one of the things that creates dissatisfaction is the fact that these unused electoral forms would produce different kinds of politics and different kinds of outcomes. And for example, proportional representation is a system where uh, parties get a certain number of seats based on their percentage of the electorate. And so people get to vote for something. And even if you don't win in the sense that your party doesn't get the most votes, you still get some representation based on your percentage. So if you get 15% of the vote, you get 15% of the seats. And with a territorial winner-take-all system, if you get 15% of the votes, you get nothing. Because unless there's enough other parties that 15% is the top, which is, you know, it theoretically, mathematically could be, but it's not going to be. So just that one example of, of what we don't use produces what I call the loser problem, which is that when you vote, in a winner-take-all election and you don't vote for the person who wins, you're a loser. <laughs> and <laughs> and it seems like, well, democracy is about winning and losing, and that's what an election is, but there are electoral forms that can mitigate the loser problem by giving the people who come in second, third, fourth, whatever place, some share of power instead of all or nothing. So we have a binary, all or nothing, winner-take-all system. And, I, and, and that, I think, by itself, even though most Americans probably aren't aware of the mechanics of the proportional system or uh, even you know would know that, that it would mitigate the loser problem they're aware of the fact that when their candidate doesn't win they get nothing so there's a sense of dissatisfaction that comes from the loser problem playing out you're listening to the pothole problem podcast created by white tiger productions at white tiger productions we create experiences if you have an idea for a podcast a workshop or a show of any kind We'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. There are so many things about unfair electoral systems from like gerrymandering to like whatever and money and politics all that stuff but i kind of wanted to for this episode focus on the very core of how we vote and you kind of jumped the gun a little bit and i kind of want to come back to talking about the various voting methods not too deeply but 
a little bit. But before we get to that, I just kind of want to have a bit of a bit of fun. Okay. And uh, I want to ask you, um, what do you think are kind of the top kind of unfair electoral moments in U.S. history that have kind of like that uh, that someone might point to and say, this is why we need a new voting system? Well, I mean, obviously, when the person who wins the electoral college doesn't win the national popular vote, that is a common time. And it's happened twice in the last 20 years. And it's potentially going to happen again. Uh, it, it, it used to seem like it was far-fetched, and now it seems more likely to happen more often. Um, that obviously is the case. And, you know, one of the things about the presidential election that's tricky is that there's no getting around the loser problem there. There's, if there are two or more people running, people are going to vote for somebody who's not going to win because there's only one presidency. Uh, the way to mitigate that loser problem is actually to have a multiple executive, right? To have there, there are other systems that have dual executives. You have a president and a prime minister. There are uh, multiple executives where people get to vote for a lot of the different people who are running for executive positions. Many of the states actually have that. We have that in Oregon uh, where we vote for the governor. We also vote for the state treasurer. We vote for the attorney general and we vote for the secretary of state. If at the federal level, if we actually voted for, for example, not just the president, but the secretary of state and the secretary of treasury and the attorney general, it's possible that, you know, you could vote for the losing candidate for president, yet vote for the winning candidate for attorney general. And so you, so while that does, you know, not take out the sting of losing uh, the big ticket one, the presidency, it, it does give you and people who th have a similar political view some share in the executive power. I mean, imagine if... Um, somebody were running for attorney general who, you know, really felt strongly about fairness and voting rights and, and uh, the rule of law, and that person won, and then somebody who really didn't care about those things got elected president, that would provide our system of justice with some level of protection against that kind of president. And so uh, we could have an executive election system that would mitigate the loser problem, but we don't. And it seems very far-fetched, even though almost every state elects not just the governor, but multiple statewide uh, officials. We're not going to get that at the federal level. So it's always problematic. Uh, even if we went to a national popular vote and got rid of the Electoral College, the people who voted for the losing candidate would still feel like they got nothing, right? And they would be correct, you know? The people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 got nothing, and if there had been a national popular vote instead of the Electoral College, the people who had voted for Donald Trump would have gotten nothing. So when you have one office, uh, that is unavoidable. Uh, when you have multiple executive systems and when you have a legislative system where you actually you know, elect 435 members of Congress and 100 members of the Senate, it's possible to have an electoral system where the people who don't, aren't in the category of most votes don't get zero. They get some share of it. Um, so I think that, you know, when, when you have a system where you elect one person to represent an entire body, uh, a nation or a state, there's going to be inevitable uh, bitterness among the people who vote for the loser. That's just that the loser problem can't be can't be eliminated there. That's awesome. You actually talked about a lot of the stuff I've already wanted us to talk about, because my next question was going to be about what our current system is and good or bad things about it, which you've already touched on a lot. Yeah. So like, I, but, you know, I, I want to I do want to say um, that every political innovation, every political reform fixes a problem, but introduces potentially new problems. So for example, if we did go to a multiple executive for our federal elections, we elected the president 
and the vice president in a ticket, and then we elected the secretary of treasury, the secretary of state, and the attorney general separately. That, 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 would, that would actually give people a lot of choice over these powerful positions at the federal level. Um, and, and maybe we could you know, elect the uh, administrator to the EPA, uh, whatever it is. Like If we expanded that roster, what that would do, that would, that would go a long way to mitigating the loser problem, and it would also give people a range of choices over how the executive branch of the federal government is run instead of just a binary all or nothing like do i want the democrat or do i want the republican and when one of them wins they get the entire executive branch so a multiple executive would would solve that but what it would then do is it would create an electoral system that was potentially chaotic and very uh you know but while robust also potentially just too much right imagine people going around the country running for secretary of treasury <laughs> and running for attorney general uh, and running for secretary of state now what would probably happen is that the parties would put together a ticket just like they do for the president and the vice president so there would be the republican slate of candidates for president vice president attorney general secretary of state secretary of treasury and and administrator of the epa but people would be free to vote not party line uh, and those candidates therefore would be campaigning as a party ticket, but they could also potentially be separating themselves from their, you know, let, let's say that, you, that, let's say that Jeff Sessions wanted to be the attorney general and he was on the ticket with Donald Trump as the Republican presidential candidate. Um, if people liked Jeff Sessions, they could vote for him and they could vote for Hillary Clinton for president. Uh, or uh, Sessions could himself say, well, here's what I'll do as attorney general. And Trump, as the presidential candidate, might say, well, that's not what I want you to do. And Sessions, if he was running for his own seat, could be like, well, tough, right? This is what I want to do. So what it would, what this kind of system would do, it's kind of a fantasy land to even talk about it, but it would create uh, a new kind of campaign that might, in fact, be contentious, problematic, confusing. We don't, I don't know how it would work out because it's, we haven't tried it as an experiment, but uh, it, it could potentially be make our national politics even more tumultuous, even more chaotic, even more money would be poured in because all of these different candidates would be would be raising their own uh, campaign funds. They would be pooling their funds to have a party line. It there would be a lot going on, and it wouldn't necessarily uh, be pretty, and it might increase the role of money in elections. It might uh, create even more tribalism and divisiveness than we already have, uh, and so that's the potential downside of what i could would call an improvement on the loser problem because now you now you can vote for people separately and, and you don't have to be so bitter but it could create a lot of other problems right and so this that's good you kind of went on off on one kind of voting system which is fine you know it's your podcast but just as an example i could, you know <laughs> because i don't want to make this a two-hour podcast i don't i don't want to use every possible example right so i just i don't want to I mean, we don't have to go too deeply into this but I will tell you before I ask this next question that while researching this podcast, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole okay. where, I, where I just started looking up videos and li reading articles for like tons of different voting systems. That's what you kids do these days. You go, you go down rabbit holes, don't you? <laughs> so I kind of want to, I kind of want to touch on this just a little bit because I kind of think it's a cool topic and I kind of want to work in this podcast about different Absolutely. voting systems. So, and, I, and just to be sure, I might actually interject a little bit because I actually know some voting system stuff. So you, I just kind of want to go over quickly. You've been down the rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> so I kind of just want to talk about quickly, like what are some other voting systems, maybe not necessarily for president, but for other offices too, and how they might be good or bad. Well, you know, there's, uh, at, at the simplest level, there's things like just changing the way election day works. 
which we already have. But, um, you know, there's been proposals to make Election Day a national holiday. There's been proposals to make sure that there's extended voting for two weeks or more. Uh, um, you know, mail-in balloting, certainly during the pandemic right now, mail-in balloting is, is a big uh, topic. There's all kinds of uh, proposals to basically make ballot access easier. And then that's, I would say, the most simple, pragmatic, like doable thing that would change our electoral system. And then there's, you know, things like the system of proportional representation, where people vote instead of for candidates in a win winner take all system they vote for parties and parties get a share in uh, the vote there's also ranked balloting ranked preference balloting that where instead of just saying well okay here's my top choice and i hope that person wins uh, you get to say well here's my top choice and if they don't if they come in third then then my second choice is this and that person gets my vote so there's there's all kinds of uh, ways that you can change the way that votes are cast and counted there are ways that you can change the way that people are chosen for positions. The proportional representation system is the, probably the, the most obvious way to change that. And then there's just ballot access, you know, making it easier for people to vote. And you would think that that would be in the interests of all who love democracy, but that has never been the case. And in fact, one of the biggest fights after the these constitutional amendments were ratified that granted voting rights to more groups was then those groups getting realistic access to the ballot. And we know that there are all kinds of reasons why different uh, political operatives would want to either restrict or expand ballot access because politics is a high stakes competition. It's not just, oh, democracy, let people vote and we'll see who wins. You want to win. And if certain groups of people are going to vote for you, you want to make sure they have ballot access. And if certain groups of people are going to vote for your opponents, you want to make it harder for them to vote. And that is like, because democracy is a sort of self-regulating system, we create democracy through the democratic system. It's, uh, there's a competition over questions like ballot access. And there's a competition over questions like what kinds of um, voting uh, um, methods do we use? You know, ranked preference voting would be, would be very, beneficial to smaller parties because people mm -hmm. could then say hey i vote for the green party candidate for president but then i'm not throwing away my vote because when that person comes in third or fourth then my second choice is the republican or the democrat so uh people would be more likely to you know want to uh cast a, th a third party ballot if they had ranked preference yes so i bet there are some politics nerds listening to podcasts right now who are like screaming at why don't you mention this voting system why don't you mention that voting system so before we go away, because I have one last thing I want to cover. Before okay. we go on from voting systems completely, I want to kind of talk to you about some stuff I discovered All right, see for you. my journey. So one, we've got... Oh, you're calling it a journey now. Well, yeah, I mean, calling rabbit holes kind of a little silly. It's like a journey. It's like a soul-searching, like, oh, man. It's a journey where you don't actually have to leave your room, too, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, the best kind of journey right now, right? I, I, su I suppose that's true. <laughs> so we've got the classic... Um, sort of ranked choice, which I think is what a lot of people are kind of pushing for. One of the other voting methods I did discover, a different way to sort of have a ballot, is you have the ballot with candidates, and you basically give each candidate a score based on how much you like them. Mm -hmm. You're like zero to five or whatever, and you give each candidate a number, and then you just basically tally up the numbers for each candidate, and the one with the and then like most numbers wins, which is, a, I never, I would have never thought of that. I think that's right. kind of cool. Well, you know, it's the thing about democratic theory is that there are so many different ways to give people the chance to have a choice. Like you could also just say, okay, for, let's say we're electing 10 people to say a city council, right? 
and let's put everybody who's wants to be on the city council, let's put them on the same ballot. And let's say there are 70 people who want to be on the city council. Uh, and then every voter gets 10 votes. So they just fill out 10 bubbles of those 70 names. And then we just, whoever has the top 10 number of bubbles filled out wins. Right. And that's, that's actually called, by the way, that's like, that's called approval voting where you just, you can vote for more than one person, but you don't give them like a ranking or a number. You just right. check and you, however many and boxes you, get, you want. And you get a certain number, maximum number of boxes. Um, there, there really are just so many different ways to choose people. And one of the things I think that's too bad about our democratic system is this, is that when our system was created in the late 18th century, the ideas about how to elect people were limited to the <laughs> territorial district winner-take-all system. That was all, you know, democracy was young <laughs> and naive and wild and free. Uh, it was a teenager, basically, or at best a teenager, and didn't have a whole lot of ideas for how to, how to live life. And over the course of the past 200 years, democratic theorists and political operatives and just people who are interested in the question of how people elect have come up with so many different innovations that all are legitimately democratic in the sense that they give the people the choice over their representatives and over the policies that uh, that govern them and we have adopted exactly one of those innovations <laughs> and that is simply the direct democracy where people get to vote on initiatives and referendums every other innovation in uh, democratic theory which has taken place ha has taken hold in other countries and and some uh, cities and municipalities do use some of these things, but for the most part, all of these other innovations have never taken root in the United States. And I think it's unfortunate because I think most Americans probably just think that democracy is winner take all territorial representation. And I vote. And if my person wins, then they win. If they lose, they lose. And it's, it's unfortunate because there really is a greater richness of democratic forms that are available and our system doesn't make use of them. And I, I, I find that to be too bad. I know there's a lot of it's kind of amazing you just like you look at the countries and most of them use either first past the post which is the winner take all system or the sort of traditional rank instant runoff voting and most people don't even delve into the kind of crazy yeah. other types which is kind of and, you know it's, it's kind they're, of amazing they're, they're not crazy they're just <laughs> unfamiliar to us yes. in fact you know what the the idea of approval voting where it's like okay there's 10 there's 10 seats on a city council i get 10 dots that i fill out on my ballot there's 70 names or however many names that's not crazy at all that actually is that's actually really pretty pretty elegant it just seems crazy because we've never had it and we probably never will you're listening to the pothole problem podcast with jack miller keep up the good work we've kind of been talking about all these different ways that we can determine the will of the people what do the people want how do you determine it all this stuff and most people think kind of like you said the will of the people is a very simple whoever gains the majority or the plurality but as a political theorist without maybe going to the weeds too much why is it not as simple as that well, that's just it, is that um, if a democracy, if a democratic system is a search for what the will of the people is at the moment of the election, then uh, the will of the people might be represented arithmetically, numerically by the majority. But the will of the people is an abstract concept. And essentially, the will of the people is what our electoral system says it is. And since there are all of these different electoral systems, we could we could measure, if that's the right term, the will of the people 
with rank preference balloting, with approval balloting, with proportional representation, with a, with a uh, multiple executive. Whatever system you use to choose the people who make the decisions, and then if you also have a system like direct democracy where the people sometimes get to choose their own policies, whatever system you use, that is sort of by default the air quotes will of the people, but it's just one potential version of what the will of the people is. In all of my exploration of political theory and democratic theory, I've never seen an argument that one version of a democratic system is more clearly able to find the, quote, will of the people, unquote, than any other. They're all just different versions of it. And, and part of it is that there is no such thing as the will of the people because there is no the people. The people is a construct. It's, it's a made up, it's not an organic thing. It's not, it doesn't have its own body. Right? Like you, there's a will of Zane, uh, and it's actually probably pretty complex to figure out what that is. There's a will of Jack. There's a will of all of us. We can say that's true because we are embodied and we are sort of an organic uh, physical thing. The people is not the equivalent of that. Metaphorically, perhaps, and abstractly, and when, when philosophers and democratic theorists talk about the will of the people, they're, they're talking about this abstraction as though it has some kind of reality, but it, it doesn't really have... A material reality definitely doesn't have a material reality and it may not even exist at all so in my view what the will of the people is is what the outcome of whatever democratic system we choose uh, tells us it is and different systems are going to have different kinds of outcomes and so the will of the people could be uh, expressed in a lot of different ways it is kind of amazing how people are outraged at how they don't think the system is fair but then again who is the system fair for and how do you make sure it's fair like it's a very it's more complicated than just it's not representing us or it doesn't it's not fair like there's a lot more to it right and you know the we focused mostly on foundational questions of like what does the electoral system look like but i would say functionally the things that probably outrage people the most have more to do with who wins in the current system rather than dissatisfaction with the current system so for example when people are outraged that uh, money plays too important a role in politics and and uh, corporations and rich people win more often than uh, other groups. Um, and when people are uh, outraged that um, it's harder for certain people to vote than for other people, we're really not talking about dissatisfaction with the kind of electoral system we have, with the territorial winner-based, uh, winner-take-all system. We're talking about dissatisfaction with, uh, like, well, I, I want to win more, right? Why do rich people always win? I'm not a rich people. I, I, I don't, money ought to be less important. Or, you know, why is it that uh, even though uh, white men are in the minority in uh, groups, or they're not a minority, they're, they are less than 50%, why do white men still comprise like 75% of office holders? That doesn't seem fair. I think a lot of the unfairnesses have really to do more with people's dissatisfaction with the kind of outcomes we get. And of course, outcomes are a result of the rules of the system. But I think that while we've been talking about sort of these foundational philosophical issues, I do believe that in, in our society, the biggest dissatisfactions actually have more to do with uh, these more pragmatic things of like, well, money's too important and there's access and there's gender double standards and there's, uh, there's ballot exclusion, you know, ballot access exclusionary policies that keep minorities uh, and poorer people from voting uh, at a high, as high of a turnout rate as, as uh, white educated people. Uh, so... That, I would say, I just I, I didn't want to let the episode go here without noting that there are all kinds of sources of dissatisfaction uh, with our electoral system that go 
beyond you know the the kind of democratic system that you set up, which is what we've mostly talked about here. Yes, I kind of um, I kind of framed the episode in terms of more fundamental political questions because I thought that that would be an interesting episode. I but think, well, I yeah, and we did talk about it mostly, and I and I I just wanted to note that here at the end, there's there's actually there are multiple conversations to have about why people would say that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's that's all for today. Good, I think that's a good way to end. Well, thank you so much, Zane, for interviewing me and for uh, the multiple interviews you've conducted over the course of this first year of the Pothole Problem podcast. This is the second to last episode for the year. Uh, this is episode 29. I'm going to do one more episode next week where I'm myself just going to sit down by myself with the microphone and reflect on what I think has been a transformative set of ideas that have come through your interviews with me, but mostly with the interviews that I've done with the many guests. So that's what's coming up next week. Uh, the final, the finale of year one next year, I'm sure we're going to be back with lots of guests and with more interviews uh, of me by Zane. And of course with music and this episode will end with a, piece of sort of chaotic music that was recorded right here in the White Tiger studio. It's a production that involved a lot of different people, as you'll hear, but it's really featuring Pat and Kyle, and it's a rap battle, and here it is.